And we are going to get to back to Genesis this morning, and we get to work through two whole chapters today, Genesis 32 and 33. The title of the message is Extraordinary Measures. Have you ever had to use extraordinary measures to teach somebody a lesson? Maybe that's happened to you. Sometimes with kids, you come to a point when you're like, the normal disciplinary measures aren't going to cut it. And you decide, I think it's time to take it up a notch. So mom and dad look at each other and they're like, can we do this? Do they allow you to put a shot collar on your kid? No, no? okay, no, can't do that. <clears throat> but for us humans, sometimes extraordinary measures work and sometimes they don't. There's the old catch a kid smoking and then make them sit down and smack a, uh, smoke a whole pack of cigarettes in one sitting idea. You know, one couple decided to tell their children that they used to have another brother, but he turned into a mushroom when he wouldn't do his chores. These kids were fighting and their parents made them stick together, literally, until they could work out their differences. Some parents in L.A. made their child walk around with a bag of dog poop all day because they failed to clean up their own dog's poop. <clears throat> yeah. Um, one guy's parents, here's what they did. They completely emptied his room, completely emptied it out, and then allowed him to earn things back slowly over the course of several weeks with good behavior and good grades. Some have done other things. There's, you know, washing your kid's mouth out with soap. You know, that's an old one. There, some parents have had police come and pretend to take their kids to jail. I like this one. Removing the door of your teenager's bedroom. That's actually a good idea. This might be the worst of all. A dad in Cincinnati forced his kids to watch five minutes of C-SPAN for every one minute they were late getting home. So 20 minutes late, there's 100 minutes of C-SPAN. Cruel and unusual punishment, right? Thankfully for us, God's discipline, it's always right. We don't always get it right, but God always gets it right. And sometimes he takes it to another level. And he did that in Jacob's life in a, a pretty unusual way, but one I think that we're going to be able to relate to. But before we jump into the scripture this morning, let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for these passages that we're about to read. We pray that it would speak to our hearts. God, we just, we just lay down humbly before you this morning asking you to do the work that only you can do. God, the work that my words are not able to do, that none of us in here could do, but only the Holy Spirit inside of us. And it truly is. This is all vain if we are not open to the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. So we ask for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start in chapter 32, the very beginning, with just the first two verses. Jacob went on his way, 
And Jacob and God's angels met him. When he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. So he called that place Mahanaim. So we remember that Jacob's leaving, right? He's left Laban and he's going, supposed to be going to the land of Canaan. And this happens and we're not given any information about his encounter with these angels. It just says they met. That's it. So maybe there's more to that that we're just not told. Or maybe that's all that happened. He just saw some angels, met some angels. And like last time with his encounter with God and angels, he memorializes the location and he calls it Mahanaim, which means two camps. Now it's kind of difficult to understand the meaning behind two camps. But uh, so maybe he's saying, well, this is God's camp and Jacob's camp. Or maybe this is the second time I've met with God. So this is the second location I'm memorializing. Uh, I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that Jacob is about to split into two camps. But uh, let's take a look. I'm still not completely sure that Jacob fully understands that like God is meeting him and he's not just randomly stumbling upon these special locations where you can interact with God and meet angels. I don't know. Maybe I don't want to throw him under the bus or anything, but I'm not sure. Anyways, we'll move on to verses 3 through 8. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the territory of Edom. He commanded them, You are to say to my lord Esau, This is what your servant Jacob says. I've been saying, staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female slaves. I have sent this message to inform my lord in order to seek your favor. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you. And he has 400 men with him. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps, along with the flocks, herds, and camels. He thought, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. So Jacob's reaction to the news that his messengers bring back, well, it's pretty understandable. It makes a lot of sense that he would be afraid you see, time, well, it doesn't heal all wounds, contrary to what we would wish were true. And Jacob's thinking, well, Esau's wounds over all this time have not been healed. And while Jacob's fears make sense, that does not validate them. It reminds us of the sermon from last week. And this whole story right here reminds me of when Israel, the Israelites sent spies into the land. So they had been in Egypt. They got rescued from Egypt. And then they were disobedient. They had to wander around the wilderness for 40 years until God said, Okay, your punishment's over. You need to go take the land. And so they send 12 spies into the land of Canaan. And they come back and they say, It's awesome. This land is amazing, but it's filled with big, strong people surrounded by big, strong walls. And so out of those 12 spies, only two men were not afraid to go into the land, even though God said that they would be successful. And he told them to. And I think Jacob would have been one of those scaredy cats. That seems to be... His character, and like those spies, Jacob already had assurance from God of his safety, of his success. He didn't need to be afraid, just like he didn't need to be afraid of Laban, but he was anyway. Do you get the feeling that Jacob struggles with God a lot? It seems to be his M.O., and that's going to come up in a pretty big way today, but not quite yet. Let's see his next move. 
Then Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, go back to your land and to your family, and I will cause you to prosper. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two camps. Please rescue me from my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. You have said, I will cause you to prosper, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to be counted. So this particular moment, Jacob does something really wise, really noble. He prays. And prayer is an antidote to fear. And really, Jacob, his prayer is a very beautiful prayer. It's filled with a lot of good signs about his heart. He starts by recognizing the Lord and reminding the Lord of what he has said. And, you know, God doesn't ever actually need to be reminded of anything. But we do. But when we, he goes before the Lord and entreats the Lord based on God's own words. But also in the midst of that, he's reminding himself of what God has said. And that's a wonderful thing to do in prayer. Remind yourself. Think about it. Who am I talking to here? What has he done? How has he proven himself? What has he said? And you, know, you might know those things already, but you can know something and forget it at the same time. We're pretty darn good at it. It's like being a parent. I tell my kids I love them all the time, right? And, and you know what you want to hear back after you tell your kid you love them. What do you want to hear? Love you too. I love you too. And then I'm like, what does Bono have to do with this? Get it? I love you too. Never mind. It's okay. Anyways, how many times have I sat there with my kids and I'm like, I love you. I love you. I love you. They just stare at me. I'm like, you have anything to say to me? Here's Emery. Oh, you know, Dad. I'm like, I know, I know, but it's good to be reminded. Right? And it's good for us to be reminded of what God has done, who He is, what He has said. And we do that through reading Scripture, through being together with other believers in the church, and through prayer. And then Jacob goes on to do something very appropriate. He puts himself low. He was humble. He says, God, I'm unworthy. You deserve the credit for everything that I have. And he's right about that. We see how Jacob is growing in his humility, but God has further for him to go, and he's going to take him there very soon. I have high praise for Jacob's prayer, but I do have one problem, one issue. In verse 11, Jacob says, Rescue me from my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. We see, here's the thing, Jacob's praying a prayer that God has already answered. God has already declared multiple times Esau was going to be under him. He was going to, Jacob's going to be successful, go to the land of Canaan. His family is going to multiply. So Jacob doesn't need to be rescued from Esau. He needs to be rescued from himself. He shouldn't be saying, God, rescue me from my brother, for I am afraid of him. He needs to be praying, God, rescue me from my fear of Esau. And how often are we just like Jacob, we pray, God, rescue me from trials and tribulations instead of God, rescue me from my fear of trials and tribulations. 
But what does the Bible say about those things? James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. James 1, 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Romans 5, 3, and not only this, but we also celebrate in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. But we pray, God, rescue me from these lies and persecutions. Instead of God, help me to be steadfast and rejoice. But what does Scripture say? Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But I bet we would be a lot more apt to pray, God, rescue me from poverty instead of, God, rescue me from greed and stinginess. Or, God, rescue me from this boss instead of, God, rescue me from my grumbling attitude. Or, God, rescue me from this government instead of, God, rescue me from putting my hope in this government instead of you. Or, God, rescue me from this debased culture instead of, God, help me to shine bright in this darkness. See, it's important when we pray to have the right perspective. We don't want to be going into our prayers clinging to our perspective and trying to get God to bend to our will. We want to go in humbly trying to gain his perspective and match our will with his. Jacob, he did the right thing to pray. There's a lot to commend here. I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to throw him under the bus, but I'm saying that he did not ask to be rescued from his fear of Esau. And you know what? He wasn't. Because look what he does immediately after his prayer. He spent the night there and took part of what he had brought with him as a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He entrusted them to his slaves as separate herds and said to them, Go on ahead of me and leave some distance between the herds. And he told the first one, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, Who do you belong to? Where are you going? And whose animals are these ahead of you? Then tell him, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau. And look, he's behind us. He also told the second one, the third, and everyone who was walking behind the animals, say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You are also to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. For he thought, I want to appease Esau with the gift that is going ahead of me. After that, I can face him and perhaps he will forgive me. So the gift was sent on ahead of him while he remained in the camp that night. During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two slave women, his two, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and, spent, and sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. Now are these the actions of someone who has been delivered from fear and has their full faith in the Lord and God's declarations and promises? No. These are the actions of a man at war within himself. His old self just didn't want to go away, and he falls back in the same habits. And instead of trusting God, he devises his own plan to handle Esau. It's, it's like he thinks that 
God's promises just make the scales even, right? Jacob doesn't have no faith. He just has weak faith. And so here's what I picture happening in his mind. He's thinking like, oh, without God and without a plan, I have no chance. Esau's got me. But then he prays and he's like, well, with God, now the scales are even. I have no chance without God, but now I've got a chance. But now I need to tip the scales in my favor. So with God and my plan, now, now we can do this. So you don't need a plan when you have a promise. Because when you have a promise, there's already a plan. It's just not yours. Jacob prayed, but his faith, it was weak. His actions following his prayer show that he didn't have high expectations. You know the phrase, if you pray for rain, bring an umbrella. Well, Jacob prayed for rain and then went outside and rolled the windows down on his car. Don't be like Jacob. Pray with confidence. I'll bring that back up in a second. James 1, 5 through 8 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. I think those verses, they describe Jacob pretty well. He was kind of blown around. He was unstable. He was double-minded in much of his life. And when we pray, we can approach God with boldness and confidence. Now, I don't want you to confuse that with arrogance and pride. Okay, because some people go to God with arrogance. And so they'll say things like, well, I decree this, or I declare. And they act like, well, well thank you, God, for this thing that I know it's going to happen because I'm, I'm speaking it into existence. And there's actually a term for that. It's called the decree and declare prayer. And to declare is to say something as a fact. To decree is to issue a command. And I think most of the time when people pray that way, they have good intentions. They're trying to have boldness and and, and confidence, but the reality is it's arrogance masked as boldness because it puts us in a really precarious position, all right? So the problem with that approach is that you're putting yourself in, in the wrong place, and you put words in God's mouth and actions in His hands that He might never intend to say or do. And then you have to struggle with, well, what happens after I decree or declare this, and then it doesn't happen? Well, now I've turned myself into a false prophet, but Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's will be done. And he modeled that for us. So we find this balance where we should approach God with boldness, courage, faith, and expectation while also not veering into arrogance and pride. When we pray, don't doubt God's ability. Don't ever doubt God's ability. But we don't always know his precise will. So if we pray for something amazing or even miraculous, we should not be surprised if God comes through and does it. We should not be like, whoa, I never expected that. But we also shouldn't start doubting him if his answer is no. Have faith, complete faith in God's power while also submitting to his plans. We'll continue 
In uh, verse 24, chapter 32, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel. For I've seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. We've been watching Jacob really wrestle with God his entire life. And apparently Jacob wasn't seeing his struggles clearly, so God decides, you need a lesson, Jacob. And people learn in different ways. Some people are visual, some people are audible, some people are written, some people... Learn by doing, and I guess Jacob learns by wrestling. And this can be a confusing passage. One of the questions is always, well, who, who was he wrestling? You know, Jacob seems to identify this man as God. Hosea 12 gives us some insight. Verses 2 through 4, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds in the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. So some people will say, well, this was a, maybe a pre-incarnate Christ that he was wrestling with. But because of Hosea, I think the most likely explanation is that it was an angel. Either way, it doesn't change the meaning of the encounter. And... This was quite the ordeal, and it's easy to just kind of read that, and it doesn't go into much detail, and you just kind of think, oh, he wrestled with him, but we don't think about what it was like, and Kent Hughes describes it well. He said, Jacob was in the mighty hold of someone who seemed intent on taking his life. Jacob could see nothing. The assailant was silent and nameless, but Jacob, no pushover himself, rose mightily to the occasion in that long night. Six or seven hours became one of burning sweat, dripping hair and beard, and slipping appendages. There came brief periods of labored breathing and then renewed fury, gouging, pulling, budding, and then more rage and more pain and thirst and smothering frustration. What's the purpose of this? Well, God had more that He needed to teach Jacob. Jacob has been a mixed bag of faith, doubt, fear, and bad character. And he's been growing, but sometimes God decides to take extraordinary measures to refine us. When I read this story, it's hard not to picture myself. Just being there wrestling with God, fighting Him. And we might not picture ourselves this way, but it's like God has given us a visual and physical illustration of what it is like to be our Heavenly Father. 
And, and we might not think about it, but isn't it like we're constantly fighting him? He's telling us to go one way and we're trying to pull him the other way. We're like those messed up shopping carts that never go the direction you point them in. And he, he's like a parent who's always telling, he's like, why, why will you not listen to me the first time? Why do I have to tell you the same thing over and over and over? Why do you have to make things so difficult? So there's Jacob wrestling with God. A physical representation of a spiritual reality. It's like, Jacob, your whole life, man, you've been fighting. You, you fought with your brother before you were even out of the womb. And then you grow up and you fight with your parents and your brother and Laban and your wives. And you've been fighting with God. And Jacob, he's pretty persistent. So he doesn't give up. And God says, okay, then I'm going to have to break you. Pop. Out goes his hip. But doesn't it say he prevailed? Both Genesis and Hosea say that he struggled with men and with God and prevailed. He had his hip dislocated. All he could do at the end was like flop around hanging on to the guy's ankles and beg for mercy. Do we call that winning? Like when we look at an MMA fighter who's flopping around on the floor just gripping the ankles of a superior opponent standing above them and say, you won. No, that doesn't make sense. Not from our logic, but spiritually speaking, it does. J.I. Packer said the nature of Jacob's prevailing with God was simply that he held on to God while God weakened him. Matthew 10, 38 and 39 says, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. This is Jesus speaking. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This was like a conversion experience for Jacob. I'm not saying that it's exactly the same as a Christian's conversion, but God encountered Jacob, broke him, and then gave him a new identity. It's really a picture of salvation. When do we become a new person in Christ? When we realize that the old person was a failure, and we decide to cling to Jesus instead of continuing on in our own power. All Jacob could do was cling and beg for mercy. And the, the Bible calls that winning. And we win our greatest reward, our new life, our new identity when we lose ourselves, cling to Christ and beg for mercy. And Jacob walks away with a limp, a constant reminder that he lost. But he was declared victorious. And we lose that battle too. When we try to fight against God, we lose. But when we ask for forgiveness and cling to Christ, we are declared victorious through Jesus' victory on the cross. See, it was Jacob's weakness. God showed him his weakness. And through that weakness, God showed his grace and his strength. It'd be hard to read this story without also thinking about 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. This is Paul speaking. He says, So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. 
So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Hear me. You are a weak loser. You guys think I should have been a motivational speaker instead of a pastor? You're a weak loser when you're disconnected from Christ. But when you're connected to him and the power of Christ rests on you and the Holy Spirit in you, then you are victorious. His grace is sufficient for you. God's infinite strength is on display because of our awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping, breathtaking pansiness. We magnify God's greatness by boasting in our weaknesses. Now, we do not boast in our sins. That would be silly. But we boast in our inability to save ourselves from our sins. We boast in our incompetence to change without the Holy Spirit and our emptiness as human beings when we are disconnected from the purpose and mission God has given us. Chapter 31. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming toward him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two slave women. He put the slaves and their children first, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. He, put, he himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. I'm sure everybody felt good being put in the order of who Jacob would be okay losing first. All right, um, hmm, let's see. You guys are up front. If this gets violent, you can die first. And Leah, you and the kids, you're going to hang back, go next. And then uh, Joseph and Rachel, you're going to be at the back. You'll have the best chance of survival. Even though Jacob had this amazing encounter with the Lord, we can see that everything about him did not just change overnight. He still had his fear. He still was unsure what is going to happen with Esau. He's like us. Even after our conversion, we are still in a process. It would be great to be glorified right now, but we struggle with sin. And God, what he does in that struggle and in our doubt when we fail to have faith in him is he comes along and he proves himself and he shows us how silly our doubt is as he does with Jacob. But Esau ran to him, hugged him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Then they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he asked, Who are these with you? He answered, The children God has graciously given your servant. Then the slaves and their children approached him and bowed down. Leah and her children also approached and bowed down. And then Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. So Esau said, what do you mean by this whole procession I met? To find favor with you, my Lord, he answered. I have enough, my brother, Esau replied. Keep what you have. But Jacob said, no, please, if I found favor with you, take this gift from me. For indeed, I have seen your face, and it is like seeing God's face since you have accepted me. Please take my present that was brought to you, because God has been gracious to me, and I have everything I need. 
So Jacob urged him until he accepted. John Salhammer said, as the narrative unfolds, however, it's not Jacob's plan that succeeds, but his prayer. Of course, I would say, I, I appreciate the point he's trying to make, but I would say, you know, it's really God's promise that comes through even more than Jacob's prayer. But Jacob's fears were unwarranted. All the anxiety he held that entire time, it was a waste of time and energy and emotional distress. And it always is. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. As is always the case with doubt, God comes through and proves our doubt to be silly. And I can imagine Jacob being like, oh, so you're not here to kill me? And those hundreds of animals and that whole big to-do that I put on was just a waste. And all that time I spent worrying and grinding my teeth and biting my nails and tossing and turning all night was pointless? Well, I guess that's a relief, but man, I could have saved myself a lot of trouble if I would have just trusted the Lord from the beginning. And that's what faith does. Faith saves us a lot of trouble. It doesn't keep us out of difficulties, but it saves us a lot of internal trouble. But praise God for Esau's change of heart. God did that. And I know many of us, maybe all of us, have people that we love who we wish would have a change of heart. But notice that God did this, and he has to do that in those people too. Understand that you will not force their heart to change. You're not going to argue their heart into changing. You're not going to buy their heart for change. You're not going to trick them into changing because the weapons that God has given us to fight hard hearts are truth, love, and prayer. And I think, well, here's, truth won't work if, unless it's coupled with love. And the reality is none of it works at all if the Holy Spirit's not doing, it, doing something in them. And I think deep down, these are things that we know, but we get caught living like we don't know them. And so we end up trying to force people into changing. And you know what? You can. You can force people into changing their actions, but not their hearts. It's like with society. We can change laws, and we can use force to make people comply with those laws. Heck, you can even pay people to do things that you want them to do, but you cannot change hearts that way. God changes hearts. And he gives us truth, love, and prayer to use for his work inside. So if you have someone that you love and you're like, man, I wish they would have a change of heart. Speak the truth in love. Pray, pray, pray. But don't take God's job into your hands. 
We'll finish the chapter. Then Esau said, let's move on and I'll go ahead of you. Jacob replied, my Lord knows that the children are weak and I have nursing flocks and herds. If they are driven hard for one day, the whole herd will die. Let my Lord go ahead of his servant. I will continue on slowly at a pace suited to the livestock and their children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, let me leave some of my people with you. But he replied, why do that? Please indulge me, my Lord. That day Esau started on his way back to Seir. But Jacob sent, went to Succoth. He built a house for himself and shelters for his livestock. That's why the place is called Succoth. After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of the field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. And he set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. John Selhammer pointed out, ironically, the 400 men accompanying Esau turn out not to be for battle with Jacob's household and for taking his spoils, but rather for safeguarding Jacob's family during the final stages of his journey. Just another example of how much energy we waste in fear and doubt. Jacob was still struggling with his old self, though. You see, God had given him a new name. If you remember during the wrestling match, he was asked, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. And in that moment, he was really admitting, it's a fitting name for me. Deceiver is what it means. And then God, said, God gives him a new name. He says, that's not who you're going to be anymore. You're going to be Israel. However, Jacob has not yet fully embraced his new self. And he turns to deception again. You see, he never intended to go meet his brother. That was not, he, it was not something that he was planning to do. It wasn't something that he was supposed to do. He wasn't supposed to follow him down to Seir, and he didn't intend to. And so he starts making up this story of, oh, you know, oh, gosh, if we go another day hard, everything's going to die. And how about this? You go on, and, and we'll kind of go at our own pace, and I'll catch up to you. He didn't intend to catch up to him. Kent Hughes said, Jacob's facile lie contradicted his stunning experience and affirmations of the previous day. He was both Jacob and Israel. Israel would have spoken the truth in love. Jacob rationalized that, well, one day he might go to see her. We also see that Jacob did not fully obey God in the end and go where he was supposed to go. He actually stopped just short. But we're going to deal with that a little bit more next week and see how his partial obedience ends up costing his family in a really horrible way. But for now, we'll finish on the note that though God had given Jacob a new name, a new identity, a new reality, Jacob was not quite ready to leave his old self. I, I mean, I appreciate, we see growth in Jacob. I appreciate that he continued on to meet Esau despite his fears. He didn't have, he didn't have to go through there. He didn't have to go that route. He didn't have to meet Esau, but he stepped into his fears and God proves himself. And that's something that we were talking about in our D group this week of like, how do we overcome the fears that we have? Well, so a lot of times we're like, well, I'm not going to do this thing until God takes my fear away. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. You need to press into those fears. And by doing that, by walking in faith, you'll see that God will prove himself and show you that the fears were unfounded to begin with. And your faith will grow. So we don't just sit around and wait 
to not be afraid before we do things that God has told us to do. But Jacob still had trouble letting go of his old self. Is that you today? Because if you have believed in the biblical Jesus and chosen to ask for forgiveness for your sins and repent and put your faith in him and follow him as the Lord of your life, then you've been given a new identity. It's been in your bulletins all month, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you get saved, you are born again and given a new reality. Live in that identity, that reality, with that purpose. Don't hold on to your old self, the old heart, the old mind, the old life. And can I ask you this this morning? Are you growing? Can you point to concrete evidence in your life now? Like, not like, oh yeah, yeah, I put all these... You know, I died to myself in these ways 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 5 years ago, last year. But right now, can you point to concrete evidence that your old self is still dying? And that you're still growing? Because it is a process that you need to keep going through until you are brought to glory. So maybe you struggle with lying or worry or fear or lust or addiction or whatever, greed anything. Is it going to do you any good to hold on to the old things? No. So replace them. Replace worry and fear with bold and confident, but not arrogant, prayer and faith. Replace lying and deception with honesty and transparency. Vulnerability. Replace disobedience with obedience. Replace the old with the new. Because the longer that you wrestle with God, like Jacob was wrestling with God his whole life, the longer you keep doing that, the more likely God is going to need to use extraordinary, meaning increasingly painful measures to get you where he wants you to go. Because as we've learned, God disciplines those he loves. And so my advice would be, if at all possible, let's just keep growing, not fight him, and avoid the extraordinary measures. But also, if they do come and they are necessary in your life, be ready for them. Be ready to respond to them in a healthy way. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. What a wonderful picture of your grace. And we, we all struggle, Lord. We go through so many things and, and the weight of our sins just tears us apart sometimes because we're, we're broken. And we should be. We should be convicted and broken whenever sin is... is in our lives and, and, and we're not overcoming it and we're just giving into it. And, but we thank you so much for the gospel. Lord, when we fight you, we lose, but then we get declared victorious because of Christ. And all we can do is just realize that the old self doesn't work. It's a, 
absolute failure. Completely, utterly, it's a disaster. But we just reach out and we cling to the cross. And we beg for mercy. And you give generously. And you look down at us and you say, you're a miserable failure. But guess what? My son wasn't. He succeeded. His death has paid your debt. And if you will cling to him, then you are victorious. That's the gospel. There's nothing out there in this world like it. God, the gospel of other beliefs, other religions, twisted truths, it is not beautiful like that. Thank you so much. As we think through the things that we've been learning this morning, God, help us to pray. Help us to pray when we're afraid, not to give in to our fears, our worries, our anxieties, but to cast our anxiety on you because you care for us. And when we pray, God, that we would be bold, that we would be confident, that we would have faith, not wavering, not doubting, not unstable. We can pray with expectation, but then also humble ourselves to say your will be done and not mine. Lord, we have people in our lives that we want to see their heart change. And many of us, we've gone through the mistakes. We've argued, we've fought, we've taken the wrong route. We, we feel like we've tried to make their heart change and it's actually just made it harder. The good news is that it doesn't matter how hard a heart gets, it's not impenetrable by your love and your grace. So we pray that in those people's lives that we're thinking about this morning, that the Holy Spirit would go in and do the work that only he can do. And that we would do everything that we can in our power in the right ways. And that you would protect us from the mistakes. God, sometimes you use extraordinary measures to discipline us, to refine us. Help us to have the right perspective about it all. Lord, help us when we go in our prayers as we were talking about, God, sometimes we, we just pray with the completely wrong perspective. And sometimes we're just asking for the wrong things. But help us to ask for the right things, to pray with the right perspective. And thank you for being a loving God who hears our prayers and who answers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.